the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we'll be joined by filmmaker, writer, and producer Dream Hampton, who will talk with us about the state of feminist thought and activism here in 2022. We're going to talk about the death of Bell Hooks, a writer and activist who set many of the modern templates for thinking about the intersectionality of gender and race, and we'll talk about where her absence leaves that thinking today. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So every now and then, a writer comes along who challenges our current frames of thinking. They critique and analyze and puncture in order to create new spaces for imagination and to establish a more beautiful way for us to think about our world. Bell Hooks was that kind of intellectual, pushing feminism to expand its boundaries, to include African-American perspectives, and to more deeply interrogate history. That's particularly exemplified in her book, Ain't I a Woman? But it's something that marked so much of Bell Hooks' work. Hooks died last month at the age of 69, but she very much lives on through her work, of course, as well as through the literature that is produced today that's influenced by her work. And her death leaves us with some important questions. What are the ways that she has shaped us, our world, our thinking about feminism and racism, race and gender? Where does feminism lie today? Does it still carry blind spots like the ones that Bell Hooks was so adept at pointing out? And who are the people and institutions that are trying to usher in a world that is more inclusive, more benevolent, and less patriarchal? That's where we want to begin the conversation today with the death of Bell Hooks, but the beginning, I hope, of an exploration of what her work, what her life meant to all of the discussions that we're having in this country about gender and race, about feminism, about racism. And joining us to frame that conversation is someone I really enjoy talking with here on the program. Dream Hampton is a filmmaker, activist, and writer. She is the executive producer and showrunner for the Lifetime uh, movie series called uh, Surviving R. Kelly. And she was executive producer for HBO's It's a Hard Truth, Ain't It? and for BET's Finding Justice. Uh, Dream Hampton, Happy New Year, and welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. Happy New Year. Before we get into Bell, you know uh-huh. what I realized? <laughs> you had me, because the, as I was listening to the news about the Oath Keepers, um, you had me on last year and we were kind of talking about, you know, what was to come. I think it was the third or fourth it of was. January. It was. Right? And I felt kind of loony going on and on about white militias and that that's what I really had my eye on, right? And so... You had no idea how prescient that was. I knew. And so I just want to come back and say, hey, I was right. I never get to do that. Like, look how right I was. (laughs) I mean, and that's that's one of those weird moments, right? Where you're like, I didn't want to be right about that. I sure didn't want to see what happened on January 6th, but... But I told you, I told you this was <laughs> so coming. many people, so yeah. many people. Yeah. I, um, 
Wow. Yeah. And That's being from, Mich from Michigan, we can't, you know, I I had been, uh, we talked about the Capitol and Lansing as this kind of precursor. Um, so you don't necessarily have to be prescient. You just have to be watching what's happening. <laughs> right. Pay attention. Right. Because we were talking about uh, the protests at the Capitol here and the threats that were made against mm -hmm. uh, Governor Whitmer's uh, life. And, and, you know, two days later, two days later, yep. uh, we saw. As soon as I saw the bear spray come out when I was watching, I said, oh, God, this they're from is Michigan. Michigan and Indiana. No <laughs> doubt. Right. No doubt. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, hi, so Stephen. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's great to have you back. Maybe you will uh, predict some other things. This, uh, <laughs> no, this fresh out of predictions. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm always watching Putin, but I'm right. fresh out of predictions. <laughs> right, he's, right. he's pretty obvious. He's yeah. not. That's I right. mean, there, there's yeah. a lot of signaling there about what he's up to. Yep. So, so I I do want to start with uh, with Bell Hooks and her passing mm -hmm. and her work. Uh, but but I think before we before we get really into it, I, I think we have to kind of start at the beginning because there are a lot of people who weren't terribly familiar with uh, with her uh, or, or her work. So just spend a little time talking about who she was and why she was so influ influential to, to so many people. Yeah. Well, I mean, in 1981 at 18, um, well, she wrote the book at 18, but it was published in 1981, Ain't I a Woman, Black Women in Feminism, became this seminal text um, that so many of us discovered whenever we discovered it. I discovered it in the late um, 80s at a bookstore on Livernois called Shrine of the Black Madonna. Mm -hmm. Um, shout out to... <laughs> I was going to say, it's a familiar place. <laughs> it's quite familiar if you're from Detroit. And, yeah. um, and so it was a place where I, I learned, you know, so much and read so many texts. But um, I remember picking up that book um, and just being utterly transformed by it. At that point, I'm sure that I had begun reading fiction by people like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker, who were doing the work of you know, unpacking Black feminist thought mm -hmm. in their in their work, in their narrative work. Um, but Bell was writing essays um, that quite clearly laid out um, and examined the effects of racism and sexism on, on Black women, on uh, the Black power movement, the civil rights movement, and the feminist movement, um, all the way from, you know, Frederick Douglass, from the suffragists, you know, movement all the way to the 1970s. And she just had this plain and careful way of making these bulletproof arguments um, that just advanced that thinking for me. Um, like a lot of young Black girls, I was taught mostly by, you know, folks in the movement that feminist was a white woman's, you know, movement, that it didn't have anything to do with Black women. Um, thank God I <laughs> discovered the work, <laughs> as Bell Hooks did, of people like Audre Lorde. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in the 70s and 80s, Kitchen Table Press is happening. There is this work that's happening from the very beginning. Um, you know, Ms. Magazine, you had Black women who were, who were present um, and who were already complicating these questions, who were saying, we can't talk about feminism without talking about racism. And... Um, without talking about capitalism, you know, this is not only Black women's contribution to complicating feminist kind of arguments, but um, women of color in general. And, yeah. and one of the ways that becomes plain, for instance, uh, in a white feminist kind of praxis, you talk about the interior and exterior life. So we talk about domestic and public life, right? And what Black women were saying from the beginning was this question of work you know, given from the history of slavery in this country was never optional for Black women, you know? Right. Um, and so this idea of like fighting to work, which was very much kind of an early feminist struggle, you know, um, fighting to leave the house to work was never one that, you know, applied to Black women right. and women of color. Right. So it, it was these kinds of ways that she would not just unpack um, the kind of, you know, mechanics of labor and, and those conversations, but also stereotypes about white women as the goddess, the pure goddess vir virgin, you know, given the whore and the virgin um, 
stereotypes. Sure. And, you know, and Black women, yeah, constantly I'm fighting against the devaluation of their, of their femininity since slavery. And, you know, she was just amazing. And mm-hmm. at 18, you know, she wrote Ain't I a Woman. And then throughout the... Um, 80s and 90s, I mean, that comes out in 81. She publishes a book a year, you know? Which I mean, just inc- incredible, right? I mean, anyone who's ever had to write anything uh, can understand <laughs> <laughs> how, how crazy a pace that is. Um, Absolutely. And with real rigor. I mean, the other thing that's amazing about Belle is how accessible she is. You know, she is definitely in the academy. Um, She's trained, you know, as a scholar and a theorist. But she, um, I mean, so she's dealing with, you know, Foucault and Laura Mulvey and, and like all of these like scholars. But she is making it so accessible. You know, when I read Ain't I a Woman at 17 or 18, I haven't entered college. I don't know who Foucault is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what post-structuralism is or what the gaze is. And she just had this way of unpacking these theories that, you know, a lot of scholars just aren't interested in being as accessible as she is. She went on to write poetry, children's books, like Happy to be Nappy. Um, you know, she just under books about love, (laughs) which you would hardly ever see scholars (laughs) doing. Uh, She and Cornell West kind of took on that work. But yeah, I mean, just a huge loss and too early at 69. Yeah, yeah. So so the word we use today, I think, that best describes the kind of work she was doing is is this word intersectionality. And I used that word in uh, in the open to the show. Um, I, I think that's, that's a really, um, it's a really soft word in a way, I think, to describe mm-hmm. the, the things she was trying to achieve when she was doing these things, right? Today, we say intersectionality as a way of talking about the inclusion of uh, many different perspectives in uh, the movement toward equality, uh, seeing things from many different uh, points of view and including uh, the people who who live those experiences uh, in, in in those discussions but it's important to point out that when she starts writing about this uh, there isn't that notion of inclusion I mean uh, there there are many parts of uh, the different social movements that are happening at that time that are separate from each other and and not hostily so but 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 certainly um adamantly so right there there is this pushback against the the idea of there being uh, a different way to think about feminism through the eyes of african-american women than 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 other women and and so what what makes her um what makes her revolutionary is that She's standing up and raising her hand and saying, hold on a second. There's something wrong with the way that we're thinking about this and talking about this. And uh, today, that's not as controversial. But the reason it's not is because of what, what, what she did and, and the way that, that, that she sort of pioneered that. Absolutely. I mean, in 1989, legal scholar, Dr. Professor um, Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality. Right. Yeah. And, and she talks about it as a lens, you know, where we can look at how power um, comes and collides, is what she says, where it interlocks and intersects. So that we don't, we don't live our lives in these separate boxes. You know, it's about kind of fully bringing your identity. And this is before identity politics gets weaponized. You know, this is uh, quite frankly, at a time when say the ACT UP movement is just getting started. So say you are a um, black woman who is say from the east side of Detroit and you're also queer. I'm thinking about my mom's best friend who was also in the Navy, right? Mm -hmm. So she is both black, you know, she uh, grew up poor. Uh, She is queer. She's in at a job where she has to hide that queerness, whatever that might mean. Um, She's also at a job, you know, where she's being asked to, you know, um, work for the state. And 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 so anyway, I, that, she comes to mind. This is a, a friend that I, my mother, my mother's only friend, actually, <laughs> uh, that we grew up with. Um, my mom's quite introverted. Um, 
And I think about, you know, who she was and all of these, you know, questions uh, when it came to, like, say, healthcare, when it comes to, you know, say she's in the Navy and they're willing to, you know, write off, say, well, they weren't even willing to write off birth control. But this is the way that all of these questions intersect and where we talk about, and not just through an identity lens, but in a structural lens, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when we look at pay equity, you know, there was a time when these numbers would just be unpacked, like this is what women make and this is what men make. And in a country like America, we found it necessary to get further into those numbers, you know? Uh, What do Asian Pacific Islander women make? Uh, What do Native American women make? What do Latino and Black women make? Um, What do Black men make? So, I mean, the questions become... And remain important, particularly when I'm thinking about just growing up Black in Detroit, um, where my own folks and issues were the driving kind of thoughts and, and, and things that motivated me. I was always told to set aside, you know, questions of gender for race. Yeah, yeah. And Bell, and this came up, you know, when we talked about R. Kelly, you know, like, uh, why is it that Black women have, like, a, a more difficult time um, reporting sexual abuse, talking about sexual abuse, being believed um, when they're abused, right? Um, and it, it has to do with this problem that is very unique to us around um, solidarity, around the question of race and understanding the very real, and it's not like Bell Hooks um, didn't talk about the ways in which the state committed daily violence against Black men, um, Black cis men, um, but she wouldn't set that aside. She wouldn't create some hierarchy of oppression to say, so therefore we're not going to talk about what's happening with Black women. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Dream Hampton, uh, filmmaker, author, activist, writer uh, who is talking with us about Bell Hooks, uh, a very prominent uh, feminist writer. Uh, Intersectionality was one of the things that uh, she pointed the way to uh, when she began writing about uh, the difference between uh, the way that uh, African-American women see feminist issues and the voice that they ought to have in the feminist movement. Um, uh, we're talking about where her death, which happened uh, last month, uh, leaves us in these conversations, not just about uh, feminism, but about racism and uh, overall equality uh, in America. Uh, we would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. Uh, call and tell us if you were influenced by Bell Hooks. Uh, what about other black female authors who were similarly in her orbit of thinking? Uh, what do you make of the contribution that they made to the way we think about feminism today? Uh, do you see that changing today? Uh, is, it, is it moving again? Is it moving maybe in a different way? Uh, and are there ways in which you personally challenge uh, the patriarchy and imperialism, as as Hooks did. Call and tell us what influence uh, writers like this have uh, over you. As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Dream, before we get to, to listeners, um, I, I want to talk about the, the when you when you publish and you write, uh, you use um, lowercase uh, uh, letters at the beginning of your name, and yeah. that's something that uh, that Bell Hooks did as as well. Um, I, I, I want to give you a chance just to talk about why you do that, why she did that, and uh, what that means. I mean, yeah, when I started writing at 19 <laughs> about <laughs> hip hop, um, in my own essays, essays and articles, I'd cite her again and again. And I fought to have my name published in lowercase <laughs> letters like hers. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> Publishers don't uh, like that. <laughs> they don't like that. And, um, um, you know, unless you're E.E. E. Cummings or Bell Hooks. And so right. I would cite them. And both of them, there was a humility in that idea. And it was one that I also wanted to adopt. And it was, you know, that the work was the most important thing, you know, that this is my offering. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And the, I, the like who I am isn't as important as what it is I'm saying. So yeah. like a lot of young black women I knew at the time, I thought of myself as part of her army. <laughs> um, daughters of her thought, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, it was my tribute to her. Um, and I, I, I yeah, think that's such a cool way that, um, you know, that you can sort of pay homage to, to again, not just someone you, you look up to, but someone who has helped pattern your own work. I mean, the, the, the ways in which all of us as, um, as, you know, voiced people, right? Voiced on the radio, voiced in print, mm -hmm. voiced on television, the ways in which all of us are, are so heavily influenced by other people, by people who came before us, is not always all that obvious to our readers or our listeners. Uh, that's a really important and cool way, I think, of, of being able to, to reflect that in, in your own work. And citation is Black feminist work. It's important Black feminist work because Black yes. women are so often erased. Yes. Um, I mean, there are some women, you know, who want to play the background. I think Ella Baker, who was so important in forming SNCC and informing Dr. King's work, and she's someone that you have to discover, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then there are people who, you know, even in my own field, the field that I worked in as a teenager, I'm constantly seeing my works uh reproduce without being cited. <laughs> uh, this is like, you know, things Stolen. I've written about too far. Stolen is the word exact. we use for That's, that. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, you know, that citation, that erasure is, is really interesting, you know? And, it, and we were doing the work, myself, uh, Kierna Mayo, Joan Morgan, Karen Good, in the, you know, 90s, taking on hip-hop and its sexism in real time. It wasn't something that we had to reflect on 20 years later. When NWA's album came out, I immediately had an answer for it in the Village Voice mm -hmm. and or in The Source or in Vibe magazine. And we were taking this stuff on in the moment. And there's this way that it gets remembered now or analyzed in this moment that often erases all of us. So in spelling my name in, in lowercase letters, I wanted to always keep Belle present because she was always present for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Dream Hampton about feminism in 2022, about bell hooks. We're going to talk about a couple of other subjects as well. We want to hear from you, as always, on the phones. Uh, what do you think of the passing of bell hooks uh, last month? What did her work mean to you? Uh, also, give us a call and tell us about influence, the people who did influence you. Uh, in the way that you do your work now, in the way that you live your life now? What were the things that you drew from other people and how did you find those folks? How did you find the people who set the pattern for the way you do things now? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, put comments there, and uh, we'll hear from you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Dream Hampton. Uh, she's a filmmaker, an activist, and a writer who was uh, the executive producer and showrunner for Lifetime Surviving Art. Kelly and the executive producer for HBO's It's a Hard Truth, Ain't It, and BET's Finding Justice. Uh, we're talking about a number of things today, uh, including uh, the death of Bell Hooks 
last month at the age of 69. Uh, very influential and important writer uh, in the sense of showing us the way to thinking about the movements for social equality uh, as having real deep connections uh, between things like uh, the, the fight against racism and the fight against sexism. Um, uh, we're talking about what she leaves for us, but also where she leaves us, and I guess where we go from here uh, with all of those conversations. As always, we want to hear from you during this uh, conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and talk about Bell Hooks. Call and talk about people who influenced you in your work uh, or in your life. Um, uh, and call and tell us what you think of the modern conversation we're having about things like racism and sexism, uh, things that have a really different place, I think, in the national narrative now than they used to. A dream, I, I also want to give you a chance to talk about another influential writer who we lost in December. Uh, Greg Tate uh, died at the age of uh, 1964, and I want to read just a little of what the New York Times said about him. It said his writing for The Village Voice and other publications helped elevate hip-hop and street art to the same planes as jazz and abstract uh, expressionism. Uh, I think of, of Greg Tate um, as somebody who uh, very much like uh, very much like Bell Hooks, um, mm -hmm. uh, smashes through a barrier that that maybe a lot of people didn't necessarily think uh, was was there. I mean, uh, if we go back to the dawn of of, of hip hop and and think of the opposition to the idea of it as music, <laughs> the idea of it as art that was worthy of of criticism. Uh, you know, Greg Tate is one of the people who really takes that on and and changes the way that people think about. It. Yeah, Greg Tate was a personal friend. In fact, I remember being at a restaurant with he and Bell Hooks, actually, um, <laughs> after she'd spoken at NYU. Um, oh, I, I'll just I'll, I'll miss him forever. He was um, when I got to New York City, he was just someone who embraced me as a writer, who um introduced me to my um, first editor at the Village Voice. He was incredibly generous. Um, Bell Hooks actually has a, a quote from Outlaw Culture where she says the function of art is to do more than tell it like it is. It's mm -hmm. to imagine what is possible, right? And yeah. Tate was one of those people whose imagination was boundless. You know, he... Um, I hate when it's called a hip-hop writer. He's not. What you said is far more accurate. He was someone who uh, was a respected critic who, when he wrote about hip-hop, then the kind of critic establishment, the media establishment in New York City, who weren't taking hip-hop seriously at all. I can mm -hmm. remember um, Spin Magazine doing this profile on NWA called N-Words for Dinner. And they took uh, these, you know, members of this hip-hop group from Compton, these brothers yeah. with Jerry Curls from Compton to the <laughs> Russian Tea Room, um, just to, you know, kind of mock them and, and see how funny it was that they didn't know which uh, spoon one used for caviar. It was insane, right? Yeah. That yeah. was literally how hip-hop was being profiled, if at all. Black press was uh, pretty respectable and largely ignored it, you know? Yep. Um, and so, you know, Tate just comes through first writing about Public Enemy. Greg Tate uh, was, there's, again, just boundless. There's no way to talk about him in a, a single way. Certainly not something um, as narrow as hip hop. Mm -hmm. He uh, began writing about like bad brains and uh, I don't know, Samuel Delaney. <laughs> I mean, his cosmology... I mean, there are three people when I think of Tate around his cosmology. One is Amiri Baraka. Mm -hmm. um, one is Miles Davis. In particular, his, um, you know, uh, plugged-in stage. In fact, Tate went on to, like, found a band. Um, right, which he was a musician himself. He was right. a musician. He also yeah. founded the Black Rock Coalition with Vernon Reed. And so, you know... Just funky, you know, just he had also grown up with Parliament and 
And that all showed up in his writing. You yeah. know, he wanted to make his writing feel as urgent as the music itself, yeah. uh, which was a particular thing that Black critics were able to bring, this kind of style. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that they invented it. Obviously, you had writers like Hunter Thompson and, uh, to a certain extent, Norman Mailer, um, one of the founders of The Voice, you know, using all kinds of styles to uh, that that were integrated with what it was they were talking about, but Tate took that to another level. And at sixty four, yes, he too died um, too soon. And yeah. and you know, just to integrate them beyond them knowing each other, you know, um, Tate was someone who identified as a, a feminist, as a black feminist, you know, as a and not a male feminist because feminism isn't just for women. It was one of the I think that's one of the titles of. Bell's books, feminism is for everyone. <laughs> right. um, you and, said that you just uh, were talking about uh, his work with Vernon Reed, um, mm-hmm. who I, I, you know, Vernon Reed for me is is you know uh, top three of my my favorite uh, uh, rock musicians. Um, oh, I didn't know I just, that. I just I just adore <laughs> him, and I follow him on Twitter. His Twitter account is also a riot to to follow him. He's always posting things, not just about music, but uh, but about all kinds of other stuff that are really provocative and interesting. Um, and I, I I didn't know that uh, the two of them did uh, the Black Rock Coalition. So I learned something today too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and their manifesto on that was really you know great. Um, yeah, and I just you know thinking about being. I remember when Death came out, the the documentary about the Seminole kind of Detroit band who used to play down the street from where I lived at Harpo's. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and Tate and Vernon riffing on that. Again, these kind of hidden, you know, uh, Black music histories, you know, that yeah. these kinds of people are holding, people like Vernon Reed, people like Greg Tate, Um and just their deep dives and then their willingness to come up from those deep dives and give us these pearls of wisdom yep. uh, were just endless, you know? <laughs> I remember learning that Sunhouse was buried in some unmarked grave in Detroit and talking to Vernon and Greg about it. Like, we got to go on a mission. Let's find <laughs> Sunhouse, of course, being one of the titans of um, sure. blues, you yeah. know? yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 if you want to join the conversation here uh, with Dream Hampton. Let's start today with Janice in Detroit. Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Hello, Steve, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. I just wanted to say that I read uh, Bell Hook's uh, Sisters of the Yam. That mm-hmm. book opened me up to me, and mm-hmm. I, w- I didn't know how hungry I was for that book. Hmm. I try to get, share that book with so many people. It's one of my top five books that I want to share with my granddaughter. Every young black woman should read it. I was an old black woman when I read it, but I <laughs> it, it changed so much for me. So Janice, uh, for, for listeners who don't know about that book, tell, tell us what moved you about it and uh, why, it, why it continues to, to occupy such prominent space for you today. She really speaks and opens up and and affirms black women our lives, not just our our sorrows, but she opens up our our power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She does not skimp on our sorrows. She doesn't uh, skimp on that or minimize it. She just lays it bare and says, "This is where we are gaining our power from." I mean, I remember reading that stress is sewn into the hem of our garment; it is pressed into our hair. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is just so. <laughs> those words will never leave me. Wow! And it's a book that you just don't read once. It's kind of like a Bible; you have to just go over it and just. It's it's like the fire next time there's some books you just have to keep reading that just kind of bathe your mind in it so you can stay strong wow wow janice uh that's a great description uh of of the way that 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 book moved you i'm so glad you called and shared that you know dream one of the questions i was going to ask you was 
for people who don't know bell hooks work you know what's what's a, a good way to get started with it what's sort of the the order of things or or the way that you would get into it but i think janice is uh, <laughs> has provided I a great answer for Jan- that <laughs> janice says she opened me to myself that yes. was so beautiful <laughs> and and the thing the the subtitle to sisters of the yam is black women in self recovery right um and this is another you know um kind of contribution that's outside of the world of academia uh, that Bell gives us, which is that, you know, she's taking on, I, I think that you know this, um, you know, as well as anyone, Stephen, that there comes this time in the 90s in particular when the entire publishing industry kind of pivots to mm-hmm. self-help books, mm-hmm. you know, memoirs mm-hmm. and self-help books. <laughs> so gone are all, as are these great novels and uh, to a certain extent, like really rigorous nonfiction. And, you know, we, we just have like shelves and shelves of memoirs and self-help books. And, and, and while I'm being critical of that and snarky about that, even now, you know, Belle saw this as an opportunity to, like, bring her rigor to this field, you know? Like, oh, y'all want to talk about self-help? Let's talk about self-recovery and what that means for Black women. Um, And, yeah, yeah, so she... There's a quote from that book. um, She talks about recipes of healing, you know? She talks about uh, on-the-spot remedies for the easing of pain, you know, to get a pen, Um, and, and and then she talks about, you know, where you when you need to go is any place where that where there are arms that can hold you that will not let you go. You know, this is how she's talking about sisterhood. She talks about no level of individual self-actualization alone can sustain the marginalized and oppressed, that we must be linked to collective struggle, to communities of re- resistance that move us outward into the world. And, and that alone is like, our, built in that is a critique of this self-help industry that tells you to take a bath or go get some therapy, which are important things. I love baths and therapy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I love therapy, but I know how important it is, right? But she also talks about, you know, um, this moment where we have to break away from the navel gazing and 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 reconnect, um, as she says, collective struggle and communities of resistance yeah. that move us outward into the world. So, I mean, she, um, she the work that she did her cosmology, quite frankly, you know, you talk about Sun Ra or uh, Samuel Delaney or Miles Davis, mm-hmm. you know, having th- this why, someone like Miles Davis, you know, who uh, just goes from one side of the planet to the other in his work, you know, I would say the same thing about Bell, you know, and equally prolific. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Sisters of the Yam is a great place to start. It's a good way to start the new year, actually. Um, yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah, uh, Janice. Uh, again, I really appreciate uh, the call and your wonderful description of uh, your relationship with, uh, with with that book. Um, let's go next to Nancy in Dearborn. Nancy, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, and thanks Hi. for having me again. Uh, sure. And uh, much appreciation for the program. This gives me a path uh, through Bell Hooks' work. I'm a '70s feminist and academic. And I was confronted with uh, what was happening with the Equal Rights Amendment and so forth uh, during that period. But I will tell you that the biggest influence was a consciousness-raising group, which we had, in which we read The Total Woman by Maribel Morgan. And if you don't know about that, look it up, because it's the one in which she tells us to meet our husbands at the door in Saran Wrap and uh, don't talk about ourselves at all, and Hmm. et cetera. It was a total submission and i was so reactive to that that i've been reactive ever since wow so, wow Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I i have to say i'm not familiar with uh with that are you dream i, I am and i'm happy that you're not uh steven i'm happy <laughs> for any that. women in your life that you're not familiar with this awful book it was published in 73 it was like a runaway success and it was yeah how to um Make Your Marriage Come Alive, I think, was the subtitle wow. of that book. Um, <laughs> that, that phrase alone has a lot of, <laughs> of implications. Um, but by the way, you know, I would like to bring another book into this, you know, mm-hmm. um, conversation, which is The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love, uh-huh. which she wrote in 04. Um 
because this isn't, again, just the work of women, you know? She talks about the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of men is not violence towards women. It demands that men engage in a kind of act of psychic self-mutilation, that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves. Wow. Right? And so, you know, this work is work that I would argue, like, a generation is now taking up, you know, to rethink what masculinity means, whether you are cis or trans or straight or queer or whatever. Like, what what, what does masculinity mean, you know? And I think about how that affects every aspect of our lives, you know. It's not disconnected from a conversation about the Oath Keepers. Um, in, in fact, you'll find that to be a pillar when they argue that they're not racist, um, they would never, you know, <laughs> argue that they are not here to like restore a patriarchal order, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, you know, feminists in their own communities were their first targets. Um, so, you know, and, and so the kind of psychic self-mutilation that she talks about, killing off the emotional parts of yourselves and, and emotionally crippling, you know, yourself is the work that kind of, she talks about patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault their own self-esteem. So it's an incredible book too, you know, um, So I know there are lots of men in your listening audience and they're not (laughs) left out of this conversation. (laughs) That's right. They should be part of the conversation too. That was, that was one of her points. Yes. Okay. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dream Hampton. We're going to hear next about what she's working on now. Speaking of uh, prolific, uh, again, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media on Facebook, Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll include you in the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest today is filmmaker, author, writer, and activist Dream Hampton. Uh, We're talking about a number of different things, including the state of feminism today here in 2022 uh, after the death of Bell Hooks in December of last year. Uh, We're also just talking generally about uh, the narrative of equality versus inequality uh, in America, a theme that we talk about a lot here on Detroit Today, but uh, also a theme that frames much of Dream's work uh, in print, uh, on television, and in uh, many different ways. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. Uh, Dream, uh, as I said before the break, uh, you have some things that you're working on that are are coming up soon. I always am intrigued about uh, what's got you What's got you worked up? Uh, <laughs> tell, tell us, <laughs> tell us what your work is going to look like this year. You know, I have um, like a lot of us. These times have required stillness, mm-hmm. not a worked upness. You know. Wow! Wow! And yeah, and it's you know this also reminds me of Belle and the arc of her work, but. So it's required like some interiority work, you know. Um, and and for me, healing is always coming through my art. And so mm-hmm. I, I was able to work on two incredibly... I don't usually talk about stuff that isn't out in the world until mm-hmm. it's out in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I never know if it's going to be out in the world. <laughs> Things get canceled at the very last minute. Right. Um, and so... But these are two tiny projects... Um, one of which will be at MOCAD, two small personal films that I did almost as a way of healing from the kind of didactic work that I had found myself doing in in documentaries, Mm -hmm. Um, not just Surviving R. Kelly, but Finding Justice, a project I did on BET, another project I did uh, that we shot in an Indiana prison that I did on HBO, all of which came out in 2019. And so um, I I began, you know, working with my good friend and producer, um, 
uh, one of the people who helped establish Detroit Narrative Agency, uh, this collective in Detroit who's working to uh, bring up emerging filmmakers. But it, in their capacity with me, they've helped me to birth these two small films that um, <laughs> that I'm working on uh, and that'll be out in the world this year. Uh, yeah. One of them will make is debut at MOCAD. Um, it's an experimental short about memory, about um, water, uh, about flooding, and about my disappearing Black city. And wow. it's called um, Freshwater. Um, I'm from that part of the east side, that uh-huh. south part of the east side, um, just north of Jefferson. Um, I grew up on East Lawn between Charlevoix and Verner. Um, and just on the other side of, of Jefferson, of course, is Fox Creek, where right. every year, um, you know, every spring, and, and now it's not just limited to one season, residents are kind of on their own fighting uh, for their survival, quite frankly. Um um, in terms of the flooding. And so that got me thinking about basements and where we store memories and my own. Um, so, Boy, that's uh, a pow- I mean, that is a really powerful idea at this moment in, in Detroit after the, the crazy wild summer we had uh, last year mm-hmm. with all the storms and the floods and, and all the things people lost. Uh, but the idea of that being framed as memory, the things that we keep in basements so often is, yeah. I mean, that's a really, that's a really compelling uh, idea. It's, it's sad. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's a, a note of, of loss, I think. Um, but, but it's an important thing to, to catalog. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm really blown away by that idea. I, didn't... I can't wait for you to watch it. <laughs> I, I hope that you, um, I was so lucky that chief curator at MOCAD, um, Joe Valin, where I recently became a board sure. member, um, I just showed it to her to get feedback on where I might take it. You know, I, I thought that I would, you know, take it to the Whitney or some other place. But she was like, can we debut? You know, like, we she have invi- it, right? I know. And I was like, I don't know. I had to check with the board to see if it was OK that <laughs> as a board member, my work debut there. But so that's happening in the spring, and I can't wait to come back on and talk more about that when it's time. It won't yeah, take the sure. whole hour. Maybe yeah. we'll talk about no, it. No, that, that, that might take two hours. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Basements are so unique to Detroit, you know? Yeah, um, no, that's right. Yeah. Other places I've lived, New York and L.A., for instance, we don't have basements. They don't um, have them, right. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, by the way, I did a very straightforward piece called Swollen where um I produced uh, myself and Ever and, and Eric Howard, uh, f- photographer in Detroit. Um, we produced this piece for Rockefeller Foundation where we took, it's called Swollen, where mm-hmm. we uh, looked at three black cities in the Midwest, Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Detroit, and how each of them were dealing, you know, with the, along the Great Lakes, how each of them were dealing with flooding. Yeah. Um and, you know, because when we talk about coastal flooding, we usually talk about coastal. Right. Um, and there is this crisis that is happening. And as with almost all environmental um, crises, you know, Black folks and people of color are on the forefront of, of bearing the brunt of that. And so we started off doing this, you know, docu- not a documentary, but these three videos that hopefully DNA will screen this year. Um, and these three filmmakers from those places, Desmond Love is the filmmaker who actually lives in Fox Creek, who shot that. And just doing that project made me want to turn into this more deeply personal film that I created myself, that I yeah. directed. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is a piece I did with composer Tamar Kali. Um, she is a, a, also a longtime friend um, and for decades. And she used to have a punk rock band and she's just an <laughs> incredible musician herself. And she's lately been scoring films. She started with uh, Mudbone. Um, oh, really? Yeah, she's, yeah, you should look her up. Tamar Kali, if you put her in, I think an LA Times article will come up that is about her work, and she's amazing. And the LA Opera commissioned her to produce a piece um, for them since they their house was dark, of course, through most of COVID. And they were, uh, instead of producing shows, they they put their money into producing digital short films. And so I got a chance to direct what I think would be the last of that series. Wow. Um, wow. And yeah, and I can't wait for that to come out. It'll be on the LA Opera's site. Um, 
And it was just a chance for me to remind myself that I'm an artist, you know, which is healing for (laughs) me, you know, because some of that documentary work feels like activism because it is. Um, I mean, you're telling you're telling stories that uh, that are meant to to make people think differently that are meant to inspire people, maybe even to action. That's the definition of uh, of activism, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Dream Hampton, uh, it is always great to have you here with us. On, oh, thank you uh, for having Detroit me. Detroit today, um, but, but it is especially great to have you here to talk uh, about Bell Hooks and Greg Tate and, of course, uh, about, about your work. Um, but, uh, but thanks so much for, for being here, and we will catch up with you soon. I'm, I'm always, uh, when we end these shows, I'm like, well there'll be a next time and hopefully it won't be <laughs> there too will long. be a next time <laughs> there will always be a next well you know as long as we have breath in our bodies yeah, and in the meantime right. you know it's just important to do the work whatever that work is it might be healing it might be work that's outward facing it might be the work of building community uh, rebuilding in your own family yeah. but those are things you know lessons that i learned from greg and bell and and, and it's, i'm not by the way you know, unaware of the systemic reasons, whether it's stress or uh, just health in general. You know, I think about the black men who don't go to the doctors, which was sadly, yeah, the case from my friend Greg Tate, um, who should have been here another 15 years. Um, And, you know, so as I grieve them both, you know, I'm trying to move forward with purpose and and would love. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we're going to have to have you back to talk about the the stillness that you were talking about and the need <laughs> to, to react to some of the things that have happened with that still. We could spend an hour on that. So uh, hey, but we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll do that soon. The world told us all to sit down. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. That is going to do it for us today. Come back Monday for our annual tradition here on Detroit Today of playing Dr. Martin Luther King. King's original I Have a Dream speech, which he gave right here in Detroit, two months ahead of the march on Washington. I will also speak with author Randall Jelks about his fascinating new book, Letters to Martin. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday. <laughs>